Matthew 24, verses one through 14 is our text. The topic, Jesus sends a shockwave through his disciples when he informs them that the Jewish temple is doomed to be destroyed. Title of our message, Informative Jesus and the Temple That's Doomed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, preparing our hearts through worship, for giving us a sweet time of fellowship with the saints. And now we wanna be those that have ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church uh, comprised of each of us as living stones individually. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Do you see the glass as half empty or half full? Well, the optimist says the glass is half full, while the pessimist says it's half empty. Here's some other unique approaches to that situation. A person with phobia says, yuck, someone drank out of it and left germs on the glass. A worrier frets that the remaining half will evaporate before the morning is done. A philosophy student declares, what glass? Bill Cosby said, it depends on whether you're pouring or drinking. Deep thoughts from Bill Cosby. George Carlin had, I think, the best answer when he said, I see a glass twice as big as it needs to be. (laughs) Now the disciples saw the temple. It was a magnificent structure, begun by Herod about 20 BC. It would not be completed until 64 AD. Jesus' disciples couldn't help but think that the temple was being built and nearing completion just in time for Jesus to set himself up as king and establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. To use our glass analogy, they saw the temple as being more than half full. Imagine their shock when Jesus said, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Was Jesus a temple half-empty pessimist? Oh, he's not a pessimist. It turns out he was a realist because just six years after the temple was completed, it would be utterly destroyed. Jesus was, of course, more than a realist. He was a prophet who would reveal to his followers, including us, the course of the age from his comments until his second coming. After listening to Jesus, Peter would put things about the temple into perspective. In his first letter he wrote, and this is from 1 Peter chapter two, Jesus is the living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't interested in finishing and occupying the temple that King Herod had built. He was going to build and occupy a very different kind of temple on the earth, comprised of living stones, comprised of believers in him, including you if you're saved. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the living stone exposes the course of this age. And number two, the living stones endure the course of this age. Verses one and two, the living stone exposes the course of this age. Now, because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives when he spoke these words, scholars call his talk the Olivet Discourse. We see his words as being a literal prediction of the course of future history from the time he spoke right through to the end of the age at his second coming to the earth. Most of what Jesus said remains to be fulfilled in the future. And so verse one, he begins, he says, uh, Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. 
It's not going too far to speculate that these guys were excited thinking that Jesus would rule the kingdom on earth from this magnificent structure. They were constantly thinking about the kingdom and wondering who among them would have the best positions. Jesus had been explaining to them that the kingdom was going to be delayed, but they nevertheless anticipated it every minute anyway. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, on his way to ascend into heaven, these guys were still thinking the kingdom was going to be established immediately. And so in verse two, Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. For the Jews, the temple was everything. One commentator put it this way. He said, the temple was the sacred heart of Jewish life and faith. It was the only place where one could truly experience God. Its stones, walls, courts, and furniture were themselves sacred. The temple guided their way of life. It was at the center of the cycle of feasts and fasts and sacrifices. To pronounce its destruction meant to pronounce the end of a way of life. This statement by Jesus would put them in an absolute state of shock. I was trying to think of something that would be the symbolic equivalent for us, not so much as Christians, but as Americans. It would have to be perhaps the destruction of the White House. Remember the film Independence Day? How many of you remember Independence Day? It got blown to smithereens. According to reports, test audiences were so unsettled by early footage of the White House being turned to dust by an alien laser that the director added a scene in which a helicopter carrying the first lady and a handful of other dignitaries narrowly escapes. Adding to the shock of the disciples was their history. When their previous temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the Jews were sent into exile into Babylon. This wasn't just going to be damage to the building that their insurance would cover. No, this meant suffering on a grand national scale. Jesus' prediction was remarkable in its specificity. He said the stones would be thrown down. No natural disaster would destroy the temple. It would be done by men throwing down one massive stone at a time. Imagine what a prophecy this was at the time. You see these stones, this magnificent temple that's being built for about, oh, 60 years so far? Every stone in it is gonna be thrown down one at a time by men. It's incredible, really, in its context. But on the 10th of August in 70 AD, which is the 9th of Av on the Jewish calendar, the very same calendar day when the king of Babylon burned the temple in 586 BC, General Titus took the city and put the temple to the torch, burning it to the ground. When the temple was set on fire, the Roman soldiers tore apart the stones one at a time to get at the melted gold. Stone after stone was thrown down until no stones were left standing. Now the kingdom promised to the Jews, announced by John the Baptist, offered by Jesus Christ, would have been heaven on earth. It's the kingdom of heaven on the earth. The descriptions of it can be found throughout the Jewish scriptures, and they're wonderful. I'll just give you a few summaries. It will be a time of health and prosperity, longevity of life, no diseases, everybody will be prospering. It will be a time of absolute peace and security. 
really a time when you don't have to lock your doors. Nature will be restored and the curse will be removed so that streams are breaking out in the desert. This is the time when the Bible says the lion will lay down with the lamb and you can interact with any animal you'd like to without fear. Be the only time I'll get near a chimpanzee. (laughs) Terrifying animal. It will be a time of holiness in which righteousness will reign, a time in which the entire world will come and worship Jesus at Jerusalem. All of that was forfeited when the leaders of the Jews rejected Jesus. He was the living stone who alone could offer Jews and Gentiles real spiritual sanctuary. They preferred to live in their small, legalistic, self-righteous world, oppressed from within and without, rather than receive the forgiveness of their sins offered by Jesus. Why stay in that state? It's because they refused to repent. Now, Jesus still offers the forgiveness of sins that would bring salvation, that would give eternal life and bring peace with God and the empowering of God the Holy Spirit. And men and women still refuse to repent preferring their selfishness and sin. It's mind-boggling, really, but maybe you can think about yourself, those of you who got saved later in life, and you now look back and you think, would to God that I would have believed the gospel when I first heard it. I can think back on several times the gospel was presented to me uh, when I had consciousness of you know, an ability to hear it and to understand it, whether it was snatched away by the devil or the cares of this life or whatever. And, and, you know, I'm grateful that I became a Christian when I was, uh, uh, how old was I? I don't know, 21, 22, something like that, 1979. Uh, But I I often look back not with any relish on my life before that. And, And would to God that I would have believed that I could have peace with God, the forgiveness of my sins, eternal life, filled with the Holy Spirit, find meaning and purpose in life. But the, the devil is at work, he's blinding non-believers and all that. But what Jesus offered the Jews, they, they could have had heaven on earth. People today can have heaven in their hearts. It's no different, but we refuse to repent because we hold on to our selfishness and our sin. It's still coming, this promised earthly kingdom. It has to, or God is a liar. But there's a delay. Jesus describes the delay as he begins to give us the course of future history in the remaining verses and right through to the end of chapter 25. And so in verses three through 14, we'll see the living stones endure the course of this age. While this is wonderful prophetic stuff, remember, we're living today in the light of it uh, and, and in some ways suffering in certain ways as believers, and certainly believers in other parts of the world are suffering, and so prophecy is practical in that it gives us hope. Now back to our glass half full or half empty analogy, after we read this section in these two chapters, we're gonna say that the glass is filling up with the wrath of God. That's the glass that I see, a glass that's filling up with the wrath of God against sin and sinners that's going to be poured out during the great tribulation. Things on earth will get worse and worse leading up to the great tribulation where especially in the last three and a half years it will be positively awful on the earth. Recovering from their initial shock but still stunned, the disciples ask Jesus to clarify a few things for them. And so in verse three, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, 
the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? If the kingdom was going to be delayed and the temple was going to be destroyed, what would follow? This is what Jesus addresses. There are at least three possible ways for an evangelical Christian to understand verses four through 14. By that I mean those of us who are um, evangelical, who believe in the authority and the inerrancy of scripture and who take prophecy literally. Uh, There's still some disagreement over the timing of certain things. There's three ways that we could approach these verses, uh, verses eight through 14. Uh, The first is to see verses four through eight as general characteristics of our age, and verses nine through 14 as particular signs of the end of the age. H.A. Ironside thought that way. Ironside's a great uh, commentator from early in the 20th century. Uh, You find his books all the time at used bookstores because people don't know the treasure that they have, and uh, just buy them. And if you don't wanna read them, bring them to me and we'll distribute them. Uh, The second way to understand these verses is to see them describing the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. William MacDonald, author of the Believer's Bible Commentary, sees them that way. If you're looking for a good single volume commentary on the Bible, the Believer's Bible Commentary by William MacDonald is a good one, and he says to him it makes the most sense that this is a description of the first three and a half years of the Tribulation. The third way to understand these verses is to see all of them as general characteristics of the age in which we live that will intensify as the world moves into the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. John Walvoord saw them that way. John Walvoord, probably one of the most brilliant minds when it comes to understanding Bible prophecy of the 20th century. And so it makes sense to see these things Jesus describes as characteristics of the age in which we live that move right into and intensify in the opening years of the Great Tribulation. Then in verse 15, We won't get there today. Jesus describes the pivotal event of the tribulation which takes place exactly halfway into it. Three and one half years into the great tribulation, you have the event Jesus calls the abomination of desolation that was written of by Daniel the prophet. We'll see what that is. And then you're definitely in the tribulation and what follows from that is a chronology of the last three and a half years. Okay, so... One thing we won't find in these verses or in this chapter is the rapture of the church. Jesus doesn't reveal that mystery until the night before his crucifixion when in the upper room he tells us, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also." We take that to be Jesus' first revelation to his disciples of the coming, of of his coming to resurrect and rapture the church so that we will be received where he is, uh, taken to heaven, obviously. Those who think that the rapture is gonna take place at the end of the tribulation and that the church is just gonna kinda do a turnaround, you're just gonna be raptured and say, hey, Jesus, let's go, and get back to the earth. That is a position, but that's not what Jesus teaches in John 14. He says, I'm gonna come for you and bring you to where I am. Uh, And so we'll talk more about all of that, but the rapture's not in view in these chapters, so we're not gonna try and force it in there. 
The resurrection and rapture of the church will occur before the specific end times events mentioned in these verses. The church will have been taken to the place Jesus has been preparing for us to be kept out from the great tribulation. Now, regardless how you time these things and all of the arguments about that, here is what Jesus wanted to get across to his disciples and to us in verses four through 14. Bible prophecy will be fulfilled to the letter as history unfolds. Now, you might not think that is saying very much, but it is. For one thing, the general non-believing public has the idea that Bible prophecy is like the Mayan calendar. They think it predicts apocalyptic type events, but that they may or may not occur depending on what we do about them. This is a very prevalent belief out in the world. They think that the, the Mayans talked about this, the you know, Christians talk about it, different people talk about the apocalyptic events of the end times, but if we would just get it together as a race of people, we can pull it together and save ourselves. In other words, they think that Bible prophecies are warnings to, to get it together or we might destroy ourselves or be destroyed. That's the plot of the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. It's not the teaching of the Bible. You remember the original Day the Earth Stood Still, the black and white version? I used to watch it on Saturdays as a little kid. It's terrifying. The guy comes out you know, of the spaceship and then the trigger-happy army guy shoots him and then it's all over because Gort comes out. Gort, Klaatu, Verata, and he lasers all their weapons. It's awesome. But that guy came in the end of the movie. It was one of those movies where if you don't get it together as a race of people, you're gonna destroy yourselves. And that's how people generally think about Bible prophecy. For another thing, a lot of Christians don't think these things are going to occur. Not literally, at least. The most popular belief among the majority of Christians is that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. They see no prophetic significance in the rebirth of Israel as a nation. As to the kingdom on earth, they think we are in it now, spiritually speaking, or that we must work to establish it so that the Lord can return to a worldwide utopia that we have prepared for him. So yes, this short section is crucial, and it's imperative we understand that the Lord was saying things are going to literally unfold just as prophesied, no matter what you see happening in the world that might seem contrary or tend to confuse you. These things are going to happen. And so Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Deceives us about what? Well, as I just indicated about the end times timeline. In other words, things will get worse and worse. There is going to be a seven-year great tribulation. Jesus will return in his second coming. He will establish a 1,000-year kingdom of heaven on the earth, and he will create a new earth and new heavens for us to enjoy for eternity. That's going to unfold. None of the following nine things Jesus mentions ought to fool you into thinking the end will be different from the one you read about in God's word or that we're in those end times that we're in the tribulation now. There are Christians who believe that we're in the tribulation now. And Jesus would say to them, don't be deceived. Pay attention to the timeline. And so verse five, he says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will deceive many. There have been counterfeit Christs and false messiahs and cults galore seeking to deceive believers. A few of you sent me an article this week titled, Could Scientology Be the Thing That Turns Flint, Michigan Around? 
Flint City Council is seriously considering embracing L. Ron Hubbard's The Way to Happiness program to kind of bring harmony to their little city. Jim Jones, David Koresh, Charles Manson for that matter. No one should be deceived into thinking these guys or anyone else were some sort of messiah. Jesus, the same Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, is coming back in that same body. Nothing can change that fact. And so that's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about in these verses. He's saying, hey, guys will pop up all the time. People think, oh, that's the Messiah. And it's just some spiritual, you know, uh, awakening of the Messiah. And Jesus said, no, I'm coming back. In the body I rose from the dead in, I'm coming back. Not some spirit, not some idea, not some philosophy, me. And so don't be deceived. And yet how many people are deceived? How many people have been deceived in these false cults? How many are deceived right now by false Messiah figures? And so Jesus is saying, pay attention to my words. Verse six, you'll hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. No matter how many wars threaten us, nuclear or biological or World War Z, humanity will continue through the great tribulation and to a war at the end of those seven years, the battle of Armageddon, when Jesus will return and destroy his enemies. World War II was the end of belief for a lot of people, especially intellectuals in the world. World War I was bad, World War II was horrible, and they came to the conclusion that there cannot be a God, or if there is a God, he doesn't care, and so they, they started the God is dead movement, basically, and got into existential philosophies and things like that. Yet Jesus said there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, don't think that the end has come because we're going to go into the great tribulation and there will be the battle of Armageddon that he talks about. Nothing can change that fact. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. When the missionaries returned from Africa, the Samaritan's Purse missionaries recently who had contracted Ebola, it sent an absolute panic through people around the world. What were we thinking bringing them back to try and cure them it's going to get out of the little lab and, and the whole world is going to die from Ebola. How many recent movies have there been about pandemics that threaten to or actually wipe out the human race? That's not going to happen. Not on a universal scale anyway. The human race is going to continue and it's going to thrive on into the great tribulation. I'm not saying that there can't be pockets of activity where millions of people die or that we're guaranteed you know, safety. But that's not how the world is going to end. Zombies are not going to eat your face off. <laughs> I don't mean to be funny, but you're going to wish they did if you're in the great tribulation, if you're not a believer, because what happens there is worse. Verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. The Amplified Version says these are the early pains of the intolerable anguish. This whole section wants to remind us that no matter how bad things seem or actually get, things will end exactly the way God said they would after intolerable anguish 
during the great tribulation. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Ten of Jesus' faithful followers on that mountain would be cruelly martyred. John may have been martyred or he may have died of natural causes. We're really not sure. We know that he lived to a very old age. There have been Christian martyrs throughout the centuries. The 20th century, by some estimates, may have been the greatest era for killing Christians in all the history of the world. In one 10-year period, it's been estimated that half a million Christians were killed in North Africa alone. We have a general idea that persecution took place sometime in the Middle Ages, but now we live in a more civilized time. And then a group like ISIS comes along and starts beheading Christians and causing Christians to flee their homeland. And then we remember that half a million Christians or more were killed just in Africa. And so these things are happening. But it isn't the end. We're not in the great tribulation just because this is happening. The tribulation is coming and it will make all the previous centuries of martyrdom seem peaceful by comparison. I've run into people, I don't know if you have, but you start talking about the end times, say, oh, we're in the tribulation now. Just look at what's going on. No, we're not. Because Jesus said, this is how it's going to unfold. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Mormonism is the fastest growing faith group in American history, according to US News and World Report. They uh, report that if present trends continue, there could be 265 million members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints worldwide by 2080. But wait, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. We read every day about some city in Europe that is now predominantly Muslim, that is uh, embarking on Sharia law. By the way, if it's ever on the ballot, vote no uh, against Sharia law. It's not a good idea. Uh, Still, the end is gonna come just as Jesus predicted it will and just as we read in the Revelation. Verse 12, just, uh, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. What kind of lawlessness was Jesus talking about? Well, maybe it's the general decay of society. For sure, we see more and more senseless violence and the almost wanton disregard for life, certainly a total disregard for authority. I think Jesus had a different kind of lawlessness in mind, the kind that leads to the love of many believers growing cold. He was talking about Christians leaving their first love on account of lawlessness, meaning they no longer look to the Bible in order to rule their lives. They sin openly, declaring God nevertheless loves them just as they are. I've run into a lot of people like that over the past five years. Hey, we're all sinners. I know I'm in sin, but you know God loves me that way. Paul the Apostle, um, he once said, uh, should grace abound, should sin abound, that grace much, much more should abound. In other words, uh, yes, God still loves me when I sin, but should I sin blatantly, openly, knowing that God is gracious, Paul said, God forbid you would ever think that way. Who do you think you're serving? And, and so while many will fall away from the faith, God's plan for the church cannot fail, and the church, the bride of Christ, will return with him in his second coming, just as anticipated by Jesus and as predicted by John in the Revelation. And so Bible prophecy isn't what might happen or what could happen, it is what will happen. It's why those who took the Bible literally were predicting, for example, in the early 20th century, actually even before that, that Israel would be a nation again in her ancient homeland way before it happened. Guys like Ironside, 
You can read his books published well before 1948. And whenever he encountered the prophetic scriptures about Israel, he would say, Ezekiel, Zechariah, these guys are telling us that God will regather the Jews into their ancient homeland. Man, did people think he was an idiot. Did they ridicule him? That will never happen. And then on May 14, 1948, God fulfilled his prophecies to regather the Jews to the letter just like he said he would. What's amazing to me is that those who had allegorized or spiritualized those prophecies still will not admit that the end times prophecy should be taken literally. They say, well, you know, whatever happens with Israel is just some separate political thing. It has nothing to do with God's program. The church is what God is interested in now. And they're just wrong. And when you're wrong, you should admit you're wrong. But they refuse to do it. Verse 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Endure means to remain under or to continue, no matter the distress. It is stressing that believers persevere despite these nine factors or anything else that would seek to undermine our faith in Jesus Christ. How important is perseverance? I like what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, when someone says to me, so-and-so has gone into sin, is that person saved? I can only reply, I don't know. We will have to wait to see what happens. I tell people that pigs will eventually end up in a pig pen and the prodigal sons will find their way back to the father's house because Peter says the pig that was washed has returned to her wallowing in the mire. And so when people are living in open, blatant sin, I don't know if they're pigs in the pig pen or if they're prodigals in the pig pen. It's not a time to be messing around with sin, to be wallowing in the mud and the mire of this world. If you're a prodigal, get back to where you once belonged. Persevere to the end and finish well. Think about facing Jesus. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Here, the gospel is specifically called the gospel of the kingdom. I take that to mean that the second coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom will be preached to the entire world during the great tribulation so that no one on the planet is ignorant of the Lord's intentions. And if you read the book of the Revelation, you'll find this is true. Uh, There are, in one place, angels flying around the planet declaring the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's what the Lord is talking about here. He's not talking about us having to evangelize the world before he can come back. Now, while we should push forward with the gospel throughout the world, reaching everyone we can, the gospel of the kingdom will be delivered to everyone on the planet during the great tribulation, and millions and perhaps billions will be saved. There's no requirement anywhere in God's word that we preach the gospel to every person on earth before the end times events can unfold. It's not a cop-out so we can slack off. None of us should say, wow, good, okay, I don't have to talk about Jesus anymore. Man, that reveals the wrong attitude. Who would wanna slack off? It's just the truth. Uh, It's not, you know, sometimes missionaries or or organizations try and burden people and say, if you you don't give to our uh, thing or if you don't go, Jesus can't come back. That's not true. Jesus can come back at any moment. We should be pushing with the gospel anywhere we're led and sent, but this gospel of the kingdom will be preached before the coming of the Lord. 
The glass is filling up with the wrath of God against sin that will be poured out upon the earth and its inhabitants during the seven years of the great tribulation. There in the book of the Revelation, it's described as the breaking of seven seals, the blowing of seven trumpets, and finally the pouring out of seven bowls of wrath as God's wrath against sin builds up and builds up to that time of judgment where men will have that final opportunity to turn to the Lord and especially the nation of Israel, will return to the Lord. Jesus will return at the end of those years in his second coming. He will establish the thousand-year kingdom of heaven on the earth. The church will be resurrected and raptured prior to that great and terrible day. That's what the Lord is saying in these verses. Don't be deceived into thinking anything else is happening or is going to happen. If you're not a believer, you are being deceived because you're allowing yourself to ignore the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is here right now seeking to free your will by the grace of God that you might choose to receive Christ, to repent of your sins and be saved. The Jewish leaders, they said, you're not the Messiah we want. We're happy in our little sin-soaked world. We're gonna just live here. Oh, the temple, it's not going to fall. None of these predictions are going to take place. And they did. And any non-believer that hears this kind of stuff is in that same boat. And the things that Jesus said are going to take place are going to take place. But hey, we have good news. You can be saved. You can be forgiven your sins today, right now, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And, And that is something that you can be sure of. Let's pray.